My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get to today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. This week's Forgecast is spooning sugar into your ear coffees thanks to the knife-making supply company extraordinaire Nordic Edge. Everything you need to stock up on from specialty steels to sexy 84 engineering belt grinders can be found at their easy-to-use website. So give them a visit at nordicedge.com.au after the show to stock up today. You see they've got 84 engineering grinders? I'm oh, I didn't, but that's that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Did I get you with that one? <laughs> Every time. <laughs> like, I know it's coming. <laughs> I don't know exactly what's coming, but I know a joke is coming and it still gets me. <laughs> I have a, a, like a notepad document on my phone and I'll be like working away on, on my day and then an idea will pop into my head and it'll make me chuckle. And I think, well, if it makes me chuckle, I'm putting it on the list. Yeah, no, good, good plan. <laughs> How has your week been? It's been a shit show, I'll be honest. Yeah. It's just, you know, little things happen all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But just law of large numbers, sometimes they all happen at once. And, like, my whole, like, everybody's everybody's life sort of falls into uh, an interval. Like, things mm-hmm. usually happen either weekly or fortnightly or monthly. Mine's fortnightly. And I set myself a goal last fortnight that this fortnight, I was going to make three high-end backlock knives and test myself. Like the mm. quality of California Dream, but as a backlock, three times in a fortnight, I thought I want to test myself. It'll be a personal challenge to try and can I do that in a fortnight and really push myself and test myself. And then the universe was like, ha, 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 plans, and then threw everything <laughs> at me. And like... It's just been one thing after the other. I I almost did nothing last week on it because I I had so much happen that was wrong. Illness, injury. I got the helicopter of death this morning on the drill press, took a oh, eighth inch thick slice out of my index finger and nearly removed my thumbnail. Um mm. Uh, just because I'm so tired because I'm not sleeping right. Um, it's just exhausted and frustrated. Uh, and this morning I just thought to myself, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to get these things finished. I'm going to do it. I don't care. I don't know what it is that seems to be intent on stymieing my plans, but I'm going to win against them. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to hell for leather. And if you see me finish these by the end of Sunday, you'll know what I overcame to do it. It's been <laughs> right right now I'm sitting here on webcam with Sam wearing sunglasses inside yep. because I'm so photosensitive at the moment, like I'm on the border of a migraine and I've just been pushing and pushing and pushing to get through. But and that's I, kind achieved, of like- I achieved what I set out to achieve today, which was good, including my stretch goals for it. So I'm proud that's of myself. But I'm going to bed early tonight. God damn. <laughs> Good plan. I mean, I suppose it's kind of an important point to point out that, like, when you're tired, sometimes the, the in the long term, it's better to take the, the time, the downtime. Yeah. Um, because 
you it like as you said it just compounds the more tired mm-hmm. you get the more mistakes you make the more mistakes you make the more injured you get because i think everybody's had that thing where you're you're about to do something and there's like if, if you can imagine all the thoughts in your head as like a crowd of people and there's one guy up the back going don't do it you know it's not gonna end well <laughs> nobody else in the crowd saying but there's that one guy going don't do it you're gonna regret mm-hmm. it um you just listen to that voice. I had every every time I've ever had something stupid happen. Every time I broke yeah. a rule one, that little guy was up the back shouting before I did it, and I was yeah. like, "Ah, the rest of the crowd's not saying anything." That's it. Like, and you know, I you normally f- f- are aware that you're walking around in a kind of haze, mm-hmm. like everything's foggy, and you're just kind of like, "God, oh, I just want to get through this. I just want to get through the rest of the day." And that's when the shit happens and you're like, oh, why was I so stupid? And especially when you're working on something particularly complex with something that you know for you is complex. It just, yeah, it engages it just makes it, yeah, yeah it, it is all this problem solving and forethought and everything that has to happen. But if your brain's running at 20% CPU, that's, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. So luckily the only thing I permanently injured was my, the tip of my finger. I've, like, I've got, <laughs> I've got spares. So that's good. It's good. If you're going to injure your fingers, injure it from the very tip and then slowly work downwards. And then you, your yeah. finger lasts a lot longer. It's like an eraser. Kind of like s- sticking it through a slow motion freaking wood chipper. You just yeah. <laughs> just work it. from the end. I haven't taken the bandage off yet to see whether or not, uh, like how bad the, the damage is, but uh, there's no like blood soaking through the bandage. That's a good sign. It's always a good well, sign. Well, I'll, I'll keep my semi-functional fingers crossed for you. Yeah, yeah that's right. I think all of us bladesmiths, none of us have like fully functional hands. Yeah, <laughs> we've all it, got like minor injuries and stuff. As as soon as I said helicopter of death, somewhere Jamie the sausage man was like ah involuntarily screamed, and his <laughs> wife was like, "Oh my god, are you okay?" It's like, "Oh, sorry, no, I just panicked when I heard Alex start describing something. It wasn't that bad. Don't worry." All I had <laughs> through my head was like the scene from Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god! Different kind of helicopter. I had blocked that out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, terrible! My son of the week is a um, sort of an oldie. I I didn't think it was old, and then I looked up when it came out, and I realized, oh god, it's like twenty or more years old. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a singer that, like, you, you mention his name, and everybody like unanimously goes, like, oh god, what a tosspot. And that's Robin Thicke. Mm-hmm. Like, you think he's the guy that did Blurred Lines and he just looks like a wanker. Uh, he's just terrible. But he didn't always used to be. He used to be a really cool dude. And he has a remarkable singing voice, like a really remarkable singing voice um, that he just doesn't use anymore. I don't know why he's mm. got this new image or what have you that he seems to be obsessed with. And he or he used to be a lot of sort of sweet star-crossed lover looking dude with the long hair and, and yep. you know, Converse all-stars and baggy T-shirts and things. He was a dude. And um, he did a song ages ago called When I Get You Alone. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really really cool song it was the first time in sort of modern music that people had remixed classical music into mm. a song um and then sort of you know dropped a beat on it and and turned it into uh, you know pop and it yeah 
it was a it's an earworm of a song and he sings it beautifully and it really shows yeah. his vocal range that he doesn't show off anymore no denying like, he's a talented musician like he got where he was he got where he is because of the fact yeah, that he's talented yeah but then he threw it all away to become a douchebag well <laughs> he kind of he kind of went down the same road as Miley Cyrus at exactly the same time as Miley Cyrus yeah yeah they even did that I, collaborative I, effort i'm still a fan of miley I like my Miley. I, honestly, she's making a comeback, to be honest. I, like, I really, I, I never stopped liking Miley. I, I, I like Miley's uh, old stuff. I like her new stuff. I, I like, like her new she's stuff. Gone. Like, I, she went real cringe there for a while. <laughs> like, everybody, she, everybody says that, but I loved Wrecking Ball. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was a good song. <laughs> I'm going to have to add that to the playlist at one point. <laughs> yeah, eventually. Yeah. That's one of those ones that you just got to rip out at karaoke and just go 110% on that one. Mate, Party in the USA was uh-huh. <laughs> one of my favorites back when I was younger. Uh-huh. Yep. Oh, man. Those were the those were the days. But, uh, yeah, When I Get You Alone by Robin Thicke. If you agree with me that he's a douchebag but you haven't heard that song, look it up and realize that he wasn't always one. Mm. How about you, Big Fudge? What have you been doing this week? Uh, Dying slowly in the heat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's funny because, like, it's only been, like, 24 to 30 degrees, like, in that range. Yeah. In the last few days. Except it feels like 24230 degrees, 24 Uh, to 30. Yeah. The the problem with it is that we've had thunderstorms the whole week. Mm. So it's been, like, low-pressure systems come through. (laughs) Yeah, so it's been like 24 degrees, but the humidity has been sitting at like 90%. <laughs> you know, you walk outside, you feel like you're swimming. I feel like I'm back in Darwin again, um, mm-hmm. which has not been fun for like doing Days in the Forge. And I've done uh, quite a few Days of the Forge recently. Um, and Day Out of the Forge. Yeah, yeah. I went uh, and did that medieval reenactment uh, demo thing at the Guildford Medieval Fair, which was great. Like, it was an awesome I was hoping out. you'd like go live there or something. I thought about it, but like A, the reception there was terrible, and B, mm. I was literally swinging a hammer the whole day. I got badly sunburned, <laughs> like yeah. standing out in the sun the whole day. Um, and it's the first time I'd been out swinging a hammer for a long time. So, um, and my friend was helping run the stall for me. So she, you know, had her hands full dealing with that. We did make quite a few sales, which was good. Um, and Zach from Laughing Fish Forge was also there, and he made a bunch of sales as well. So, um, it, we, the, the organizers were actually kind of blown away by the numbers we did that weekend. So I'm really happy with that. It was good to get back behind the anvil in front of a bunch of random people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, on, on top of that, I, uh, forged a flatter for my YouTube channel and for myself. Um, it's a tool that I've been wanting for a long time and just oh. hadn't got around to making one in a long time. I made one for a customer and I hated the experience. And I said that it was going to be the last flatter I ever make, except for one for myself. <laughs> what sort of footprint did it, does it have? Uh, it's a two and three quarter, two and a half inch base. Right. So it was forged from 40 millimeter stock. And so it's now got uh, whatever two and so it's like 60 six, something. Six centimeters. Yeah. 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 Something like that. Um, yeah. Quite a bit of upset. <laughs> um, Lots of sledgehammer swinging, and there's an actually a moment in the video that I got that I caught on camera of me swinging my hammer up and smacking the uh, the trestle beam, like the the truss, uh-huh. <laughs> in the in the shed. 
and you just see all this dust rain from the roof. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I was going at it pretty hard. But, um, yeah, no, it's a very useful tool, and I'm very happy to have it in my workshop. And uh, I also started yesterday, I started work on my hashtag Townsbow build-off uh, entry. <laughs> yeah, claim <laughs> that prize. Win. <laughs> yeah, even though I can't win. Um, but, you know, I wanted to make one um, just for fun. So I'm doing like a... I've designed something that I can make in a short period of time because obviously the buoy build-off finishes on Wednesday mm. next week uh, at midnight, Australian Western Standard Time. So, like, you're going <laughs> to... If you're in- entering, make sure you're sending me that email before Wednesday. Um, but, yeah, I want to get it done before then. And I'm kind of... I'm doing some cool planning for how I'm going to put it together purely to make it faster, but also I want it to look mean. I'm going for a mean look this time. Mm. That's very um, um, different to your usual. Yeah, countenance. so I'm, instead of instead of clean and and smicky, I'm I'm looking for for rugged and mean. I kind of taking a little bit of inspiration from your build, um, not in the same mm. like vein of like carved fittings and stuff. Uh, because I'm away all weekend, like I'm at a at a birthday party for a friend of mine, so I won't be able to do any kind of engraving or anything on the weekend, but. Uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm interested to see if I can pull it off in the short been, period of time um, that I have. Really impressed with some of the entries that I've been seeing popping up. Yeah, absolutely stunning. Like um, in the beginning, I was a little worried because we were only we only had like two or three people that were actually posting about their entries. But um, as time has marched on, we've seen quite a few people come out of the woodwork with entries, and I'm really really pleased to see some really amazing builds coming out of it. Um, it's going to be hard for me to judge. I think there's going to be a couple that I'm going to be fighting myself over their positioning mm-hmm. in the in the list. Um, I'm already starting to formulate like <laughs> the list of winners. <laughs> um, you know, you never know. Someone might come out of the woodwork at the very last minute with something that blows me out of the water because obviously there I are six days left. Yeah, I didn't didn't require anyone to post on social media. They just have to send me the email with the photos and stuff like that in it. So. Um, there could be someone working on something in secret that's amazing, mm. but uh, yeah, time's running out. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much been everything. Just sweating my absolute fucking ass off in the shed. <laughs> uh, in not, Perth, not, yeah, it's weird, strange, strange, strange. Um, my song of the week is actually um an old one, very old one that I, I used to listen to quite a while ago by a very famous Irish singer by the name of Christy Moore. Um, and like, I, I love like traditional Irish folk songs and stuff. And this one is a, kind of a nonsense whimsy song. And it's mm-hmm. called the, the Reel Irish in do the... know whimsy. <laughs> yeah. It's called the Reel in the flickering light. Right. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful little ditty. I've played it a few times on live streams and stuff like that. Cause I like, I like playing it as well because it's really cute and, uh, and a very calm song, but I, I I love Christie's version of it because he's got that beautiful Irish lilt that I can't do. <laughs> so definitely worth a listen if you want something a little bit calmer. It's nice to hand sand along too. Yeah, good yeah. rhythm for hand sanding. Uh, yeah, it's you know it's not super fast pace. It's not like you know pump up music. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, I to... don't recommend hand sanding to through the fire and flames. No, not unless you want to slice your thumb open or something. You'll get it done in like 30 seconds, but mm. you'll, you'll take 30 weeks to recover. Yeah, probably. Yeah. 
So anyway, so we have several emails, or we could do our inspirations of the week. What do you feel um, like? Oh, let's do emails. Why not? Let's let's do that first. Well, our listener email segment comes to you thanks to Knife Maker Plus. You can be taught the art of bladesmithing by ABS Mastersmith Carl Royer through a series of gorgeously rendered videos made by his talented brother Josh. It's kind of like having your own personal Mastersmith standing by who you can pause, rewind, and get to show you techniques over and over again as much as you need. And if you jump aboard now, you can enjoy 50% off all their courses for their Black Friday sale. So go visit learnknifemaking.com after the show to turn your knife making game up to 11. And our first email comes from Nick, and he says, Good morning, gentlemen. I have a quick one for you today, if you don't mind throwing some insight my way. My dad is in uh, is about 12 months off retirement from a very long career in quite a high-stress environment. He has always enjoyed working with timber and building furniture, and I would like to make him a custom set of wood chisels and a draw knife set as a retirement gift. I went back and listened to a previous episode where you spoke about W2 steel. What are your thoughts on using this steel for both the chisel set and draw knives? I was hoping to recycle some old Nicholson files that I have floating around, although I know that cannot guarantee that this will be W2. Alex, I promise I'll do good quality snap tests that I have heard you speak about many times. As an alternative, I do have some leaf spring that I could use, but unsure if the edge will hold up as well as the W2. Please forgive me if I have this backwards and inside out. Keep the work going, boys. You're doing a stellar job. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. So files, uh, older files, are usually somewhere around the 1095W2-ish sort of steel. Like you said, you can't really guarantee what type of steel it is exactly unless you were to contact Nicholson and they'd probably have some proprietary alloy, but it's going to be about 1095. (laughs) It's going to be something simple carbon. Because it makes excellent file steel, frankly, Um, whereas leaf spring is very high alloy steel. Um, Yeah. I mean, both of them would make functional chisels. I've made chisels out of SUP9, which is essentially 5160, um, yeah. and they perform admirably. Um, I mean, but- like, if if I could choose one of the two, I would definitely go with the files, mm. um, purely because... You get better edge retention out of that. Yeah, you, um, you get much finer grain structure out of those high-carbon steels when heat-treated properly than you do out of the springs, uh, on, like, on a very micro-molecular scale, but, you know that's only if you've got a heat treating oven and that kind of stuff. But um, just in the basics, because of the higher increased hardness that you get out of file steel, because it's a file, it's designed to cut metal. You know, like they, they have to use an alloy that is capable of getting a hardness, capable of cutting metal and retaining an edge for a long period of time when under considerable amounts of duress. Um, if they you, make good cutting if you, tools. If you run back to our uh, episode that um, I got to talk with Tobias um, from Apex Ultra, um, Mm. he talked about the difference between hardness and toughness in steel. And Mm -hmm. um, I have no metallurgical evidence to back this up. This is purely anecdotal from my own experience. But W2 slash 1095 is very good at getting hardness. It It can get extremely hard. But not as good as something like 5160 or sup9 for toughness i've found sup9 is is one of the toughest steels i've ever personally worked with um but it's 
depends on what you need. When you're using something like a chisel, if you are um, hitting the back of that chisel, it's the wooden handle that's really absorbing a lot of the impact mm. there. So you don't need as much toughness. You need that edge retention. You need that sharpness. Uh, I know Sam is actually a big fan. He's mentioned this on the show before. If you can get a hold of some roller bearings, uh, roller mm. bearings are often made of 52100 steel, which makes excellent woodworking tools because it doesn't like to rust very easily and it has that crazy hardness that you can get out of something like 1095 or W2s, possibly even better hardness if you've got the ability to heat treat it right. It is more mm. difficult to heat treat in a basic setup than something like a, a you know, gas forge and, and a bucket yeah. of oil. Um, but, you know, it... it if, if you want something that's going to last a long time. But the thing is, if your dad loves to work with wood, he might be somebody who lovingly cares for his tools. And if you fully clean and keep oiled W2 or 1095 chisels, they're going to last a very long time. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with Alex on that one. Like 52100 is a great steel for that kind of stuff. I've made chisels before with 52100 welded edges on mild steel bodies. Um mm. And I've also done them out of chisel, out of files and stuff like that. The only place where I'd usually spring in that set would be for the draw knife, um, mm. because you can get better sizes of stock out of a piece of leaf spring than you can out of a file. Like unless you've got some pretty decent sized files, um, you know, getting a leaf spring that's big enough to do a draw knife out of is a lot easier. Um, also, a draw knife like it doesn't need to have as um, wicked of an edge as a, as a no. chisel does. Um, it does need a good sharp. sharp edge, but it doesn't need to be like a, a good wood carving chisel. You should be able to just peel off beautiful little slivers, paper thin slivers, if you if you mm. need to. Whereas a draw knife is more a hogging tool uh, for most of the the work that it does. So a leaf spring should be fine. Also, yeah. those thin arms getting yanked on the toughness factor of leaf spring would probably actually benefit you more than something like the hardness from 1095. Absolutely. So. I've also tried forging draw knives out of... Uh, this is back when I had a charcoal forge, mind you. But uh, the problem with file steel is it does like to go red short a lot easier mm -hmm. than like 5160 or Sup9 does. And when you're forging those really thin arms for the <laughs> for the draw knife, I cracked both of them off on one that I was trying to make once. So I never yeah. made a draw knife out of a file steel again. <laughs> you also get that problem with the excessive grain growth that W2 and, and 1095 tends to have if you... Hyper-eutectoid um, steels. And, and if, you are, if you are using a coal forge, it's very easy to do that. Mm. So, um, but, you know... Don't know your setup, Nick, but it's it's all it's all food for thought for you. It's a it's a lovely um, concept of what you want to do for his retirement gift. So um, maybe once you're done, send us a photo. We'd love to see it. Yeah, do it. I love the idea of like using your dad's old tools to make him new tools. That would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Where are my <laughs> files? Don't worry, Dad. Here's some chisels. <laughs> <laughs> make sure that they're actually old tools that he's going to throw away first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I am still working on that video on how to um, uh, quote and quote identify scrap steel. So um, stay mm. tuned for that. Just need to find the time. That's the fun part. In the meantime, so, I do uh, have a playlist on like heat treating and identifying scrap steels and stuff like that as well. So, mm. So our next email comes from Hatchet. And he says, Sam and Alex, Alex and Sam, I have a quandary. What is a way to modify my 1x30 grinder to make it more suitable for knife making without spending a lot of money? 
Thank you for all you do in the community and for being an inspiration to me personally. May the forge be with you. Hatchet. P.S. My six-year-old daughter, Safira, loves you and says hi. Hi, Safira. That's Vera. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, you are. Names. I've I've actually seen Safira because um, I believe Hatchet is Never Quit Forge on Instagram. And I oh, okay. was invited here onto his live stream once. His daughter is amazingly cute. I read his memoir about being alone in the wilderness for all that time. It was a harrowing story, really, but um, amazing. Yeah, lucky he had that hatchet with him. Yeah, yeah. One by thirties get a bad rap. A lot of people sort of think of them as useless. I actually find I I I will probably would be able to accurately and truthfully say that mine gets used despite owning a two by seventy two. Uh, mine gets used probably three or four days a week. Um, they're a very useful tool, but they're only as good as the belts that you use on them. And did mm. you know that 3M makes Cubitrons in 1x30 size? <laughs> that would be a good place to start because most people get 1x30s and they buy those bulk produced straight out of you know the, the Chinese market with um, Alox grit on very bad backing that breaks very easily because you're paying like $1.30 a belt, um, really. Mm. Um, and they don't last very long. They clog up very quickly and they don't do much on steel. Um, but if you get a decent belt, I'm pretty sure VSM also make a 1x30 belts. Norton make 1x30 yeah, belts. Yeah, Norton make them. Yeah, uh, get good belts. Um, the main thing to consider with a 1x30 grinder is that it has a fixed speed and a low horsepower, which means that engine does not have much torque going for it. And uh, any pressure that you put on it is going to slow it down. So um, start out with something like a 36, if you can get a 36 on it. Um, then maybe a, a 60 or an 80, then a 120. Um, and sort of step up the grits and, and just invest in good belts and, and do uh, small steps in your grit progression, um, as small as you can get the belts in, and that will help you be able to use it for, for knife making. Having never used one or owned one, like I've, I wanted to for a long time, but getting them here in Perth is almost impossible. They just don't exist. eBay. Um, yeah, I know, but like at this point, <laughs> why would I bother? Um, you should. The, I, I, the one, they're a very useful tool. The one thing I've noticed is that the flat platens tend to be really crap on them and they tend to lean yes. away from the belt. So yeah. like working on fixing that platen so that it actually sticks to the belt and like actually provides resistance will help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing that I can recommend is get yourself an angle grinder uh, and use the angle grinder to do the majority of the hogging work before you move to the to the to a one by thirty, because the the thing is scale forge scale is harder than most grinder grit, right? Like any grit on a belt, the scale like is only harder. Yeah, it's more it's harder than that. So your belts will die so fast when you touch like scaled up work to it. Um, and so taking an angle grinder to it first and removing all of the scale, and then like doing a little bit of the hogging work before you then go to the belt grinder is going to save you a lot of time and then you're going to get more accurate and more life out of your belts. Even a good soak in like hydrochloric before, you know, the day before um, getting all you that Americans, scale you Americans call it really muriatic good. acid. Muriatic acid. Yeah. yeah. Um, so 
that'll that'll help as well. But that that platen is a is a legit thing because not only do they uh, push backwards and they don't have reinforcement, they often will over time get a bend in them, and you're sort of working with a radius platen after a while. Um, and it's simple mm-hmm. to fix because on almost every one by thirty I've ever seen, the platen is only held in place by two hex bolts. So you can either take it out, make fabricate your own one that's actually got a little reinforcement thing at the back uh, or you can modify the one that's already there by just removing it and putting a new one back on there uh, another pro tip you could get to make them better is to remove the top cover which you know you know the the forge cast lawyers are saying do not modify your machinery blah, blah, blah. but if you remove the top cover the actual um top wheel of 1x30 grinders or most 1x30 grinders is a rubberized contact wheel and they cover it up with a little guard hmm. so you can unbolt that guard and get a access to a small radius contact wheel um, which is very effective and i use it um, a lot to be honest it's it's really quite handy uh, and you've got um, a better access to uh, it's, a, it's a term used in larger grinders normally but your slack belt you've got a loose slack and a tight slack and hmm. um you have access to a tight slack just below that contact wheel uh, and a loose slack just above the platen. So it's um, it just it opens it up to a whole world of versatility. So good belts, fix that damn platen, remove the uh, the top of the guard, and you got yourself a, a pretty decent tool. It's a really good stepping stone to to bigger and better grinders later on. And I mean, if a one by thirty is good enough for our Lord and Savior Click Spring, then it's good enough for anyone. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I I I am a big proponent of one by having a one by thirty in your shop, regardless of your grinder setup. Um, and I cop a lot of shit for it, and a lot of people are like they're useless tools. <laughs> Everyone who says that doesn't own one. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I've never said that they're useless. I think they're freaking fantastic. It's just that I've never had the need to buy one. No, but like in the Facebook groups and the forums and things that you always say, people are like, don't bother. They're useless. Blah blah. blah. They're single-handedly one of the most beloved tools in my shop. Um, I would have a second one if I if I had the space, to be honest, so I could have different setups on both of them. Mm. Uh, they're cheap. They're about well, like 150 bucks. I think even cheaper in America. And um, yeah, most of the yeah, time when you like need to do some freight, yeah, the Harbor Freight one uh, is basically the, using that stock template that every brand uses. Um, easy to get belts for and even just having some cheap alox belts for them are really good for handle shaping because it's a it's a one inch belt it's 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 going fast enough to to handle wood no problems so yeah they're a handy little thing to do most of the time when you're knife making particularly you're not doing big stand at the grinder for long session jobs you're doing walking in doing a quick little bit of grinding and then walking away again and you can kind of have a dual grinder set up that way by having one type of belt on one or one grid on one and one grid on the other. And, you know, two by 72s are great when you've got to do a big grinding job. But for little ones, it's a lot of horsepower to fire up. Whereas a little mm. one by 30, just a button press away. And they don't make <laughs> as much mess. So, yeah, hopefully that helps. Um, next email comes from Corey. And Corey says, All right, gentlemen. I have a question for you that I'm hoping you may be able to shed some light on. I was asked about forging fencing blades like an epee or a foil. What material would be best for blades like that? 
and how would you heat treat it to get the springiness one would desire in a blade like that? From my understanding, the Epe blades should be able to bend into pretty much a U-shape and spring back straight. Thanks for any help you may be able to provide. Definitely seems like a very niche type of thing to get into, but I thought I remembered Sam saying he made some blades for combat sports and figured between the two of you, you might be able to come up with the answers that have currently been eluding me. Thanks, guys. And I always, and as always, I appreciate what the two of you are doing for the community. Hope you are both doing swell. So you're oh, going you. to like our technique of the week, um, this week Corey. <laughs> Because um, it's all about getting spring tempers. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but uh, an Epe's um, flexibility is more than just the temper. Yeah. A lot, like, there's a lot of engineering to, to get it to do what it does. I have, I've looked at a number of Epe and foil blades um, in my, my career. I've helped straighten a bunch of them <laughs> because, mm. uh, yeah, contrary to popular belief, they they are meant to flex and go to back to straight, but they don't always. <laughs> no, um, that thinner material, like when you're talking about foil blades, you're talking about something less than six millimeters square, uh-huh. right? Like you are talking incredibly narrow, like less than a quarter of an inch. Um, most foils start at about three eighths or ten millimeters at the at the ricasso at the area near the guard, and taper down to like one millimeter at the tip behind the ball. They are incredibly fine. And uh, I did actually have someone ask me to make them a foil blade, and I just flat out refused. Because in anything but, like, a vacuum furnace setup with, like, vertical quench tanks and all that kind of stuff, getting an accurate heat on those without losing, like, carbon and getting a decarb deep enough that it would cause a significant issue to the actual piece... Is Start with insane. a half-inch rod and then just grind it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, from some of the foil manufacturing companies I know of actually extrude their blades rather than grind them, mm. right? Like, they, they mechanically extrude them. They, they draw them like in a, like a drawing die. Um, for foil or for epee blades, they are basically a small sword blade. So they are basically triangular in cross-section, multi-hollow ground. Um they're a nightmare. They like, I, I want to make a small sword blade, but they are a friggin' nightmare to think about. Um, but I would treat, approach them heat treating much like I approach all of the fencing blades that I make, um, in that I would use a temperature controlled kiln of some kind, whether that's a Don Fogg style kiln like mine or a Paragon heat treating oven or something like that, preferably a Paragon or, or, uh, or equivalent. Uh, if you could do like a Salem Straub setup and do an argon purged, paragon kiln (laughs) that would be ideal um but then uh, i use the same kiln for tempering as well so i use it for normalization heat treatment uh and uh, for quenching and then also for tempering and i temper normally around 280 or 250 degrees celsius um for most of my blades because you the big thing is you can't sacrifice too much of the hardness for toughness because whilst you yes you want springiness if they are uh too ductile if they're a little bit too soft then what will end up happening is they will take damage and when they take damage they are more likely to snap uh they're also more likely to cause cuts in fighting because like the thing is that the blades can drag on your opponent like you do draw cuts and stuff like that and it happens incidentally in in fencing and if you have little burrs sticking out of the side of your blade from where incidental contact has happened then those burrs act like saw teeth um 
so you want it to maintain its structural integrity as much as it can. Um, my advice starting out in the fencing blade format would be do not start with fen- with a foil or epee blade. They are in- insanely fine in their cross sections and so therefore require so much more fine of control. It's um, something that a lot of people, I think, fail to see that when it comes to making a spring and what you're when we're talking about making an epee what you're making is a giant bladed spring yeah, exactly. um it's not just the heat treat that makes it spring it's also the geometry and i would argue that it's it's probably 60 percent is the oh, geometry yeah, 100 and 40 like percent is the heat treat <laughs> I've made blades that were just as flexible as one another, but one was like four points harder on the Rockwell scale, Mm. right? But because of the geometry, I could have them be the same flexibility. Um, The other thing to remember in epee blades is that in proper epee fencing, they need an electric button at the end of the the sword. And in most manufactured Mm -hmm. epee blades, there is a channel, a very fine, it's like a two millimeter wide channel that runs the full length of the blade, which allows the wire to run up the up the blade, which then attaches to the haptic vest that they wear for the electrical conductivity. So if you can't provide that channel, that epee blade won't necessarily be good for uh, actual sport fencing. Like it might be used in a, a club environment, but if they're actually doing proper competitive sports, they won't be able to use it. Um, but realistically, the, the biggest risk, and the reason that I haven't made fencing blades until now is because when the blade snaps, it is now just the cross section of that blade, right? Like behind the point, the ball or the rolled tip or whatever you have on the point of the blade to stop it from penetrating people, you snap the blade, then you just have this very fine cross section, especially with foil and epee, that is then now basically sharp and is going to kill someone. Mm. So unless you absolutely are certain that your heat treat is good, do not sell or give a fencing blade to anyone. Like I, um, all of the fencing blades I made, the first seven fencing blades I made were left to me and my club. And I told everyone that was at my club that I had made these blades and we beat the ever loving crap out of them. I snapped several of them to make sure. And only then was I comfortable with going, okay, yes, I will sell fencing blades because I know that I can reliably heat treat these things to withstand abuse. But yeah, for, for the life of me, please do not. <laughs> when you, um, the more you delve into bladesmithing community, the more you realize that every different category of blade has a certain type of blade mm. um, or sometimes types of blade that are known to be extremely difficult to make. Yes. And so you say, oh, I'm making an X. Everyone that is in the know is kind of like, ooh, you're brave (laughs) sort of thing. Um, And in the sword category, rapiers are one of those. 100%. Like Like, rapiers are one of the hardest things to make. God damn, you're making a rapier. And an epee is kind of like a very advanced rapier (laughs) in terms Mm -hmm. of trying to make a functional one of those. Because um, that's that's what we're talking about, making functional versions of them. Like rapiers are incredibly difficult, and an epee is a very slender, very thin, very light rapier. 
And the, the hard part is, is that like when you, like if you're making sharp swords, then you're not making them with the expectation that people are going to be swinging them in, in battle. Right. Mm. So like you can get away with selling a sword, a sharp sword that is not perfectly heat treated. Right. Because it's unlikely that that person is then going to go out there and start bashing on people's shields and stuff like that and snapping their sword in half. And even if they do, most of the time, the worst thing that they're going to be cutting is like a bottle or like a piece of wood inside of a rolled up newspaper or something. If the sword breaks, the majority of the risk is like just because there's a flying piece of sharp metal. When you're talking about combat blades that are in combat sports, you are making a blade which, which is, yeah, which is actually designed to hit people, right? Like it's designed to go into an arena. In, in multiple events. And like anyone who's done any kind of fencing knows that like whilst we try and gauge the power we use in combat, because we don't want to actually hurt the opponent. Sometimes shit happens and you'll both be going at each other at the same time when you thrust. And so that person's weight will be on the thrust as much as yours is. And you will knock the wind out of them. Right. Yeah. And that will bend your sword in two. And I would much rather that thing bend and set (laughs) than bend and snap. And then the sword just continue on through their throat and kill them. Uh, And that's why I'm like, when people talk to me about making combat blunts, I'm like, please just start with Hema blades or Boohurt blades, like stuff where the cross sections are thick enough that like, it's unlikely they're going to be under enough distress to actually break. Uh, and if they do the majority of the time, they're wearing substantial amounts of armor. One of the th- reasons I bring up the importance of geometry um, is because Sam brought up the, the nicks and chips that can happen in it. Um, Mm. a nick or a chip in a spring drastically will affect its uh, chances of snapping. And I kind of like to think of it like, you know, I mean, am I too old uh, or does everybody know what I mean when I say a pogo, when I refer to a pogo stick? Are they still a thing? Do kids still get pogo sticks? They're still, they're still a thing. I see, I see pogo championships and stuff all over the place. Would you get a pogo stick, put a, like an angle grinder neck in the spring, and then give it to your kid? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I mean, like, this you want is evidence what, of that. Like, this is this is what happens. Like if you do one fight one weekend with that epe and it gets a nick in it, you don't notice, and then the next weekend you go and do another one. All of a sudden, you do a, a, a land a perfect hit. You fucking straight in. It bends, you get a 90 degree, and all of a sudden it snaps and your whole weight's on it, and then mm-hmm. that's a bad day for everybody involved. Yeah, and if you if you want evidence of how much a small nick can cause a problem, if you look at my birthday blade videos from this year, um, in the blade, I left a tiny little notch from where I was doing plasma cutting, and I thought, it'll be fine. I it's remember not, that. It's not a huge nick in it. Like it's, It was tiny. It was just that little excess notch in it from the plasma cutter but i was like it'll be fine and i heat treated it exactly like i heat treated everything else and the grain was invisible like the grain was so small that you could not see it but the moment i flex tested it just with my hands it snapped into like glass yeah now i tested the uh, like the separate pieces afterwards like i stuck them in the vice and cranked them to 90 degrees and they didn't snap Mm. like i bent it i think i bent like the tip piece like five times before it finally snapped 
I knew my heat treat was good, but that tiny little notch in the back of the, in the spine of the blade. And remember, this was an inch wide blade. Like this wasn't small. And that not, like glass. that nick can be tiny. Like um, actually, Kyle Royer, who we were talking about before, he um, points out that if he is uh, grinding the you know the profile of the blade profile of a of a knife, he will bring that up to like 120 grit. He won't leave 36 grit scratches in the mm. edge of his blade because a 36 grit scratch is enough of a stress riser in certain steels and certain quench conditions to actually cause a crack to happen. Yeah. Just a scratch from a 36 grit belt. And so mm-hmm. he will polish them up to, I think it's like 120 or 240 grit or something. He'll do along his edge um, to keep that nice and shiny. And if that can happen, it doesn't take much. No. And that's it. Like at the end of the day, you're, you're not just taking your own life in your hands. Like if you sell a knife and it's not perfectly heat treated, the worst thing that's going to happen is it's going to snap in use. And most of the time that use is going to be like skinning a deer or, you know, mm. maybe doing some bushcraft stuff where they're like battening through a log or something like that. But no With one really epic. gets, <laughs> yeah, but no one's going to get hurt doing that. Like this is the, this is the thing. No one gets hurt in that instance. Someone gets pissed off because mm. their blade broke. Um, but no one gets hurt. And the, the thing is, is that you're taking that liability on yourself. If you sell something that is inferior and does break and kill someone or hurt someone really badly. You're taking that indemnity upon yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully that hasn't terrified you too much, Corey, but <laughs> makes make safely. That's all I ask. Make safely. Yes. Yes. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we've helped with our rant. Um, and our final email comes from the Anvil Vandal. He says, Hey, what's up, guys? I'm back with another question. During the week, I work construction, and as such, a hammer is an, is, is an important tool for me. Unfortunately, the hammer for my, a handle for my hammer is on the narrow side and is uncomfortable to use. I would like to replace the handle, and I know that hickory is the traditional best option and that ash is a good second, but I would like to do something a little different. I would like to do an exotic hardwood handle so that I can have the coolest hammer on the job site. As such... I'm curious to hear what you guys would say a handle adequate exotic hardwoods. I've done some digging on the web and have found some stuff on forums. I know you uh, know how you feel about forums, Alex, and that's why I'm here. I wanted to get an opinion from the experts. And while we are on the topic in my digging, I stumbled across different finishes. I've just been using boiled linseed oil, but I've seen that some people mix uh, BLO or boiled linseed oil, turpentine, and beeswax. And I have also seen a combination of boiled linseed oil, turpentine, and pine tar. So I'm curious what benefit they have over boiled linseed oil and what other handle finishes there are and what benefits they have over just basic boiled linseed oil. Sorry for the long email. Thanks for the help, and keep up the great work, Anvil Vandal. Well, I hate to tell you this, but there's a reason that hickory and ash are the most popular and traditional <laughs> handles. They're just really good. Um, I mean, you could mahogany. You could do a mahogany handle. Mm. It wouldn't. It just. It wouldn't be as good at, in terms of on, performance. Yeah, it depends on the mahogany too. Because like I know some mahogany yeah. are really, really brittle. Yeah. Um, I mean, like and the, also, what what's what's exotic for you? Like, um, yeah. you know, if you're if you come from Canada, white gum might be considered exotic. Mm. And white gum's an excellent handle material. Yeah, 
Well, spotted gum. Spotted gum is one of the best handle materials on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, it grows like roses over here. It's just everywhere. Yeah, but if if, if you live in the North Pole, it's pretty exotic. <laughs> the, the other thing is you've got to think about it like it's a work tool, right? Like it's a hammer mm. that you're using on the job. And I almost guarantee you're not going to be babying that thing. So the that beautiful exotic wood with the high figuring and all that kind of stuff going to disappear in like a day. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna get it's gonna get scuffed up. It's gonna get covered in dirt. It's gonna be you know like it's gonna be used. It's a tool. That's what it's made for. And I hate to get sort of abstract here, but once a hammer is no longer functional, is it still a hammer? Exactly. Do you at that point you no longer have a hammer on the job site if it fails? And I'm and I'm of the opinion like have a cool hammer, right? Like have a cool tool, but focus on the piece of the tool that is the piece that you need, right? Business end. So, yeah, exactly. So if you're going to have a cool hammer on the job site, don't try and change the handle material. Make a new head, mm. right? You're a, you're a blacksmith, <laughs> right? Um, the, the thing is, using an exotic wood, the problem with being most exotic woods with high figuring are highly figured, and high figuring in a handle wood for a hammer is actually a bad thing. Like right? most like, things... Alex has an anecdote. <laughs> Go for it. I got visited by uh, a local uh, from uh, a nearby town called Rosevale. And his name's Troy. He is unfairly handsome and he runs a lumber mill. He's one of these people that should be on a catalog, but he's, he's not. He runs a lumber, lumber mill. And he's like, oh, I heard that you make knives. Can you use some timber? And I'm like, yeah, sure. At the time, I'd only just moved here and I was looking to get as many materials as possible. And he goes, I've got some wood that um, it's just got too much figure in it and I can't use it because he sold structural timber. And he said, Mm -hmm. this stuff's only good for fence posts. And I'm like, yeah, okay, bring it down. And he proceeds to bring me two three-meter lengths of the most highly chatoyant Tasmanian oak I've ever seen in my life. Like... Mm. Fi- uh, figuring on it that's like five mil stripes of chatoyance just mm. you, it polished beautifully and everything and he just gave me these two huge like three meters long and they were like six inches wide and i'm like you you, you don't want these and he goes no nah, you can have them they're scrap i was gonna burn them <laughs> i'm like you sure you don't want these and he goes yeah they've been drying in my in my wood pile for about three years I got nothing to, I can use them for. They're useless to me. And I said, why? And he goes, well, the, the, the figuring makes them weak. We can't put anything. Mm-hmm. When it's got that much curl in it, I can't put any weight on top of this. It won't hold it. And it kind of, kind of changed my perspective because from him, his perspective, that was a useless scrap. And mm-hmm. and that's why you don't want you know, a highly chatoyant um, hardwood for your hammer handle because there's going to be a lot of shock and strain and, and, and weight go through that. And that gorgeous chatoyance comes from imperfections in the wood. Yeah. I mean, essentially I'm, in terms of its strength. The only exotic hardwood that I've used for a handle was on that engraved hexhawk I made where I had like mirror polished flats and like hand engraving from Ty Granger. And I used a piece of Fiddleback Otway Blackwood from Ryan. Mm. And I finished that thing up to 1500 grit, right? Like I got it shiny and it was beautiful, but that whole thing was completely impractical. 
Yeah. Right. If if you went that to wasn't use the purpose that, of it. Practicality yeah. was not the purpose <laughs> of that piece. If you went to use that hexhawk, it might last a few swings. But the figuring in that blackwood and the the way that blackwood is structured, there's a good chance the head is just crack off. Mm. Right. It's it's not built for handle material. It just looks cool. And the thing was if that it, if it was Tasmanian blackwood, it'd hold up. <laughs> but the that thing one's is, like. Ryan. <laughs> if it's um but because it was an engraved mirror polished hexhawk right like no one was going to be using that for functional work it is a display piece mm. it's like um friggin Jar- um bloody hell what's his name uh young lad from tasmania that makes hammers occasionally jason, jason. yeah um he made like those like mosaic damascus rounding hammers and he used like ring gigi for the handles and i was speaking mm. to him about it um, at symposium and he said, yeah, I had to go through three handles before I actually had one that didn't snap off when I was seating it. <laughs> like it just, just the action of trying to seat the bloody handles was shearing them off because they're not made to withstand shock. It's a kind but, it's kind of an, it's kind of a wholesome metaphor, really. It's the faults in the wood that make it beautiful. Exactly. But it doesn't make them practical. <laughs> no. So yeah, if you want a I, cool hammer on the, on the work site, make yourself a new head out of some Damascus or something, if you want to be really f- bougie. You know, you get those handles. corporate motivation posters, like the hang in there baby with the cat on the clothesline and that. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's there's one you should get, Anvil Vandal, and have it posted on the side of your workshop wall. And it's got a picture of a fork and all the four tines of the fork are all bent and one's got a loop-de-loop in it and they're all sort of splayed everywhere. And the text says, just because you're unique doesn't mean you're useful. <laughs> I've seen I've seen a similar one where it had like a, an axe with a steel handle and a wooden head. Yeah, that sort of thing. It's, it's <laughs> on, I, I totally get wanting to stand out on the job site and everything, but it has to be a functional hammer first. Yeah, first, second, I mean, third, fourth, and fifth. Really, when I when I sell my hammers, like my custom made hammers, my engraved heads and stuff like that, I'm not selling the handle. I'm selling the head. Right, the yeah. handle's just you the keep, delivery. You keep method. the head after the handle fails. Yeah, the handle's going to break eventually, right? Like it's going to slip off, it's going to shrink, it's going to get cracked, it's going to like snap off if someone hits it wrong. But the head will survive, and you just put a new handle on it. Yeah. So if you want a cool tool, make sure it's the piece of the tool that you're actually using, not the piece that you're holding onto. Yeah, because I mean, you, you might be able to pick up some engraving skills and, and engrave your hammer to make it unique in, in that way. Or you you know, you're a, you're a blacksmith. Make the hammer head, and then just stick a, a, a good, functional, strong hickory handle on it, and exactly. call it good. You know, if you want something that you know is still functional that probably nobody else has, because I don't think there's any commercial hammers that do this, use a willow handle. Hmm. Willow is fine for a hammer, um, but it, you don't see it on many hammers. Um, it's once again not as good as hickory, not as good as ash, but it's a it makes for a damn good hammer hammer handle. But you just don't see it very often, so that could be your unique thing. I I do love that he says like you know hickory and ash are the standards, but he wants to use something exotic. Meanwhile, here's me a hammer maker in Australia going, I wish I had hickory or ash. Yeah, I know. Well. <laughs> White gum is actually a native ash. It, it's called white gum, but it's not a gum. Mm. It's an ash. Which yeah, I'm still is, waiting to get my hands on some because there's none here in WA. Yeah, the lumber mill that um, gave me the sample piece to try, um, they closed down. Went out of business. Bugger. 
Yeah, apparently they've opened a new one somewhere else. I have not found it yet. I need to track mm. it down. But yeah, but it grows here, so I need to track some down again because I'm I, I don't know if I've got any left. Probably do somewhere. My workshop's an absolute mess at the moment. <laughs> so, but anyway, our um. With the emails out of the way, our technique of the week is is ready to go. We haven't played this sound for a while now because we've had so many guests. So uh, join with me and sing along because it's time for Technique of the Week. Technique of the Week. week. So Technique of the Week this week is how to get a spring temper. So, Corey, this one's for you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Spring tempers, uh, like we said, it's probably about 40% of the function of a spring. That 60% comes from the geometry. That in itself is a whole topic that, that yeah. could be the subject of four or five back-to-back episodes of the Forgecast. Yeah, this spring geometry, technique is not oh, like how to do spring geometry. This is how to do no. spring tempers. There is a, there is a, everybody knows about the, the Christian Bible and they know about the Jewish <laughs> Torah there is a machinist's Bible as well. Mm-hmm. It's called the, uh, I think, the Machinist's Handbook, and yep. it gets revised every year. I have a copy of it. It's not a cheap book. I was very lucky to get a copy of it sent to me by Brandon, um, a former patron of Sam and I. Um, it is. It has a whole whole chapter in that book. Like there are something like. 1200 pages in that thing and there's like a solid centimeter of pages just on how to do spring <laughs> geometry and the yep. spring temper section is about three pages <laughs> yeah um so a spring temper can be explained by um a phenomenon in physics that i've done a 60 second video on because it's a boring topic to talk about but i wanted to explain it in 60 seconds and it's a thing called young's modulus of elasticity and the fancy it's a fancy way of saying the amount something can bend and or deform and still return back to its original state it's mm. like the, the peak that it can bend so a spring temper is basically the the more into a spring temper you go, the higher its modulus of elasticity becomes. Yep. So if you push something past its modulus of elasticity, it will take the bend. It won't spring back to true. It will it might spring back still, but it won't spring back all the way. So a or spring temper <laughs> in Yeah. And so let's just take say you take a piece of steel that is hardenable, hardenable carbon steel and you quench it so it's glass hard and you do the the quench perfectly, you then need to temper it. Normally, if we're talking about something like a bladed tool, um, like a knife or a chisel or something, you would temper it to something like a straw gold color. You look for those colors in there, um, in the steel. So a spring temper is when you bring it back through into your, like a blue color um, all the way through to a light blue. But going for a light blue is a little harder because you are like, half a second away from gray which is detempered and and also you can get the blue blue brittle stage of steel which is the point at which uh the tempering stops and it actually starts going back into to ferrite and perlite but at that period it's actually more brittle than it was when it was quenched that's it so you want you want to get it more towards your your rich blues yeah Um, purple blue peacock blue yeah 
And that shows you that it's now, uh, you have increased its modulus of elasticity, basically, because before you temper it, its modulus of elasticity was very, very low. Basically, you try and bend a piece of freshly quenched steel and it doesn't bend and snap back into mm-hmm. a position. It doesn't take a bend, it just shatters. Um, but as we temper it, we increase that modulus of elasticity more and more and more until it becomes um, non-functional, basically. You become, it gets soft steel. But even a piece of mild steel has a certain amount of spring back. Um, in fact, fun fact, if you find a post vice, but do- it doesn't come with the original spring, you can make one out of mild steel and it will work. You just got to get the can. geometry right. <laughs> yes, geometry is the hard part. Um, so the spring temper, though, is it's going to be about what, 320, 340 degrees Celsius. Yeah, any, anywhere for, from for like, most for most steels. Anywhere from like three hundred to four hundred degrees Celsius, or uh, about uh, let's say, let me just check, uh, five hundred and seventy to about seven hundred and twenty Fahrenheit. Freedoms. Um, yes. But one thing that really matters is actually the steel alloy because some steels don't like to be given a spring temper. They don't work very well as springs, whereas other steels work brilliantly as springs. Hey, hey Alex, you know what oh, steels don't, say the like, word? Don't, don't like to take a spring temper? Is it hyperutectoid? <laughs> <laughs> and it's simply be- and it actually is because of what we're talking about before. Hyperutectoid steels get really hard really well, but they're not particularly tough. Whereas high alloy steels are sort of what is it? Um, hypoutectoid steels. Yes, hypoutectoid and hypoutectoid steels. Um, are usually higher alloy sort of situations which give it more flex, more toughness, more not all the time, but a lot yeah. of the ones that give you that good toughness, like 5160 is a good one. 01 uh, is a really good spring steel. It's, it, it's mm. phenomenal at being a spring. Um, whereas if you try and make a spring out of, you know, W2, it's not mm. going to go great for you. You can make a spring out of 1084, mm-hmm. but it's got to have limited flex. Like it, it depends on the application of the spring. Yeah, how, if you're doing a spring, how many, that's only how many going 1084 <laughs> springs did you break on like your first couple of folders? Oh, so <laughs> I remember many. getting, I remember getting like message after message of him just going up. Oh, that's another one. Oh, that's another I, one. Oh, I that's was another determined one. <laughs> to prove that 1084 could make a good spring. And what it is, is it comes down to how much it's going to flex. So like, mm-hmm. Oh, like a, if you're making a backlock knife, for example, the actual tip of the spring in a backlock should only be deforming by a couple of degrees if you've done it mm-hmm. right. And so, you know, it, it doesn't, it, you could, you've got a bit more of a range of steels that you can use. I mean, you can still play it safe and opt to use something like 5160 or 02. A lot of people love to use 02 for slip joint mm. back springs, for example. Um, when they can get it, it's not as easy to get for, for poor souls like us. Yeah, um, well. <laughs> but, but like, if if you have a spring situation, like a car leaf spring, for example, that needs to flex a lot, um, mm, something that is, is yeah, uh, over a many many years of use, you need something that is incredibly tough, uh, which is mm. where something like fifty one sixty fifty one sixty shines. Even in the old school days, so like of sheer steel springs and stuff like that in carriages. The majority of them that I've seen tested are like 1055, 1060 equivalent, right? Like they're they're very low carbon 
or mm. low alloy, but they're also low carbon, like they're hypo eutectoid steels. Still hardenable, still good knife steel, like, you know, 1060 is a, a decent knife steel, but it's on that hypo eutectoid side of the range, which means that it's not forming carbides. Um, mm. Because the thing is, like, the alloy content isn't as important because 52100 is an incredibly high alloy steel but it's also an incredibly high carbon steel. And because of the alloy content, the carbon actually migrates around the alloys and creates alloyed carbides, which is why you get chromium carbides in 52100, which is why it gets such great edge retention. But yeah. it is completely inflexible, right? Like yeah. anyone who's tried to press a bearing <laughs> knows that bearings <laughs> can turn into grenades really easily. Uh-huh. Right, and the uh -huh. fragments from bearings can fire off so fast that it's not even funny, um, and that's because they are not a very elastic thing. They are an incredibly hard thing. Um, yeah, by design too. Like yeah, it's, exactly. it all comes down to the application. Yeah, but like as as you say, literally, literally almost anything can be turned into a spring. It's all about the geometry, right? Like if you make a piece of ten eighty four the width of a piece of paper, then it will be pretty springy. Mm. <laughs> but um, it's not built for spring applications where a lot of force is required as long as as well as a lot of deflection. Yeah, that's right. Um, but once again, that geometry plays a huge, huge role um, mm. in that. So, yeah, but in terms of getting the temper down, it's, it's as simple as just heating it to the right temperature and making sure it's a thorough heat. And you can do that by viewing the temper colors or you can do that in a kiln or with a, um, an infrared thermometer and just watch for that. Aim for, shoot for, you know, middle, middle 300s. Aim for, yep. you know, around three, 340, 350 and that it, it gives you a little bit of wiggle room for if you overshoot it. Um, and you're in you're in a temperature range where you can arrest that temper in water quite safely. So you just and have a bucket of water by hand on, on hand. Most like most uh, ovens, like most commercially available ovens, aren't going to be capable of reaching that kind of temperature. No. Um, so that's be something to be aware of. If you're trying to make a spring temper in something very large, you're going to need a very large kiln to do it. Um, yeah. And in the home shop, the majority of us are going to end up doing spring tempers by torch. Um, and in that a good case, trick with would, that is to have some brass plate and rest it on that and heat the underside of the brass plate. Do the old click spring trick of, uh, of the, the brass shavings. Bed. Yeah. Oh, I really want to build one of those. I, I want to make one of those myself. I actually had someone offer me like an entire garbage bag full of brass shavings from their lathe. And I oh, said yeah. yes, and they never got back to me. <laughs> I was oh. like, damn it. <laughs> one day. I have one a, day. I have a miniature one of those setups that I made for, I think it was Tusk. I did heat blued hardware mm -hmm. on Tusk. And um, I made a small copper bowl. It's kind of more like a spoon because it's a bowl mm -hmm. on a stick that I can put in my vice. And in the copper bowl, I put brass shavings and I'd rest the, the bolt in there. But um, I will say, if you are looking to get accurate... Um, temper colors the oils from your fingers alone or any sort mm -hmm. of other schmutz that's on that steel will affect its um coloration not in a huge way but if you're chasing a particular color it it will happen in a noticeable way uh yeah. clean it with acetone first yeah or, or run it run it over a scotch even run it over a scotch bright wheel is enough to usually strip off most of it but acetone is a, is a good Clean it very yeah. thoroughly because, yeah, any any little bit of oil on it immediately ruins it. I've done a number of, like, mirror-polished uh, heat-blued fittings, and all of them suffered from, like, 
little oils fingerprintitis <laughs> yeah horrible hated it yep yep so um definitely definitely uh clean first so but um geez we've been going for over an hour already we, we haven't have. even gotten to a topic Time flies, and we haven't done our inspirations. <laughs> we haven't done our inspirations. We need to do it. Let's let's do inspirations and finish it on inspirations because I'm I'm flagging here. I'm on the yeah. verge of a migraine, which we, is why I'm apologize. stumbling over words so much. We apologize, guys, but both of us are pretty burned out. We've we, both had it's really been good a weeks. it has been a month. <laughs> it, it really has. I mean, no lie. I have actually. I I really wanted. I I would happily end the show on this note but i have been wanting to shout this guy out for weeks but we've had guests on go for it Um, who's been inspiring you his name is david orm and he's from birmingham in england which is where my um mnh armitage anvil comes from Mm -hmm. Um, he is a jeweler and he makes um it's not it's not just what he makes that makes him cool in my eyes um, cause he, he does, um, a lot of sort of Norse themed stuff and a lot of Celtic themed stuff and, and, um, he does arm rings and that, but the thing I like about him is that he's doing old school, like copper smithing and bronze smithing and, and just, you don't see enough people doing it anymore. It's, it's cool stuff to play with, you know, green sand casting and properly, um, working with wire that you've formed yourself in a rolling mill and mm. um, like reusing every little scrap and putting it together and melting it down and forming new ingots and then processing those ingots out. And it's it's sort of people sort of think of that as like, oh, I, you know, I don't have enough. It's too much work. I don't, I don't have the energy for that. But the thing is it's doing it like that and reusing all those scraps and forming them into new things. It's taking literally nothing cast offs things that people Mm. throw away and it's turning them into these things and especially with the case of jewelry things that people treasure things that have presence things that help create an identity for somebody things that can remind a person of the person who gave it to them as a gift or as the time that they got it in it can hold such power for a person a piece of jewelry the right piece of jewelry and to have it be crafted by hand the old school way out of nothing and he's really good at showing it too his instagram is filled with he's, he's been putting a lot of effort recently into doing reels showing the process and everything yeah, and it's he has single-handedly relit the fire in me to make more jewelry because I, mm. long-time listeners will remember, I got my start in jewelry long before I got into knife making. I did jewelry, but I've, I've sort of, it's fallen by the wayside and David has made me re-fall in love with it and I've been slowly getting back a lot of the gear that I got rid of uh, back in the day uh, when I made my move to Tasmania, I got rid of a heap of stuff. I'm getting it all back and I want to do more of it because it's, it's just, he, he's doing it the right way. He's doing it the way, or at least, you know, my, my perception of the right way. And he makes really cool stuff and his consistency is on point. His twists are beautiful and clean. His hammer finishes are really nice. 
his sand casting is so neat. Like I wish I had that mm. sort of success in sand casting. I was actually He's I was actually so talking good. to him about his casting because like I noticed that he had the Delft clay set up, mm. um, like those little little molds and stuff like that for Delft clay. And I was kind of like, where did you get those? And we were chatting back and forth, and it turns out it's all from eBay. And I was like, ah. Oh. I just now got I need- one of those cast iron casting flasks. Now, um, I now I just to, need to-, to have one back. Now I just need to justify buying like a whole bunch of Delft clay and some casting flasks. I'm like, God damn it. I don't have room some, for it. If you get some aquarium sand and some bentonite clay, you can kind mm. of make your own, um, which does a passable job. Yeah, I, um, I have the setup to do like green sand and stuff like that. But Delft clay for like um, doing jewelry stuff is just amazing. Mm. It's much finer, much finer and more uh, well bonded. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he, I just, I just love, I love his work firstly, his arm, like I'm, I'm a person who like, I I have an arm ring on permanently. I I never, Mm -hmm. the only time I ever take this off is when I have to go through an airport security because they won't let me (laughs) keep it on. And it's bent onto my wrist. They let me wear mine. I just, I just look suspect. You've got that winning smile. I just look like a, a grumpy ass person so yeah it's like this my arm ring is bent onto my wrist so removing it is physically painful to do and i i love my arm ring it never goes anywhere like if i died i'm pretty sure my wife would be like i want that arm ring (laughs) (laughs) give me that arm ring but um david makes some amazing ones like my favorites are the ones he does of twisted wire with the Mm -hmm. the the ball silver solder on the end gorgeous work it's beautiful he's done rings that are like damascus on the outside but bronze on the inside and i've been wanting to work more with bronze but um yeah it's just check out his work if you're not already following him because not only is the work itself beautiful and wonderful but his effort that he does in showing his process of doing it i it's like crack for me (laughs) <laughs> I could literally just sit there and watch videos of him doing casts uh, and and working down through you know pulling things through drawing dies and 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 working down the scraps into liquid metal and and all that sort of thing. He's literally creating these amazing things that people are going to treasure out of nothing, and it's amazing to watch. So um, his. Instagram handle is Orm underscore made. So Orm is O-R-M-E underscore made. Um, so, yeah, he is he is from the same place my anvil comes from 221 years ago. Mm. So, but, uh, yeah, and I'd love to have him on the show at some point. David, if you do listen to this, consider coming on the cool. show. Tell us all about metal casting and jewelry making. We'd love to hear so, but what about you, Sam? Who's been inspiring you? So my inspiration, I've, I've actually got like a backlog of inspirations because we've had so many, mm, me <laughs> like, too. Yeah. so many interviews <laughs> recently. I'm like, ah, I just want to get these out now. Um, he, he is not technically a blacksmith or a bladesmith, but he does work in metal. Mm. Uh, and he is, he's very popular. Like, um, Kirk Hammett. Know, yeah. <laughs> he's got a, he's got the blue check mark, you know, he's, 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 He's up on he's on the up and up. So many of our listeners probably know of his work, but if you don't, uh, he is a, an absolutely insane metal sculptor, right? Like when people think about metal sculpture, sometimes all I think about is those weird, like bent, weird 
<laughs> like sculptures you see in like every township mm-hmm. and it's just really weird mangled messes of steel that are supposed to like represent freedom or whatever mm-hmm. no he he makes like three times life-size animals and stuff like that out of steel mm. uh and his name on instagram is uh metal underscore sculptor underscore kevin underscore stone it's kevin stone right um, and the thing that really caught my eye was that he made a full scale dragon. Oh, and that's I, that guy. Yeah. When I say full scale, I mean, this thing was the size of a house. Yeah. 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 We, I think we've all been watching that thing come together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then like there was another one where he's made an eagle the size of a house and it's all mirror polished. Right, like when you see the close-ups, it is literally all a mirror. There is not a single blemish. And because it's all hand-formed, you know, it's it's an amazingly freaking detailed work to do. But yeah. his metal sculptures are just beyond insane. At the moment, he's working on a full-scale replica of a T-Rex. As you do. As you do, yeah. But just, like, looking at the way he works metal, like... Yes, he's not a blacksmith and all that kind of stuff, and he's doing fabrication, but he's also doing, like, fantastic amounts of sheet work manipulation. And it, everyone knows that sheet metal work is, like, my the bane of my existence. Mm-hmm. But to see someone do it well is always inspiring. And Need to I get him and Veet Alexander together in a room. I really do, yeah. But, yeah, that, that dragon just blew my mind i was looking at it just going jesus the amount of hours that went into that uh-huh yeah just could not imagine it uh was irking me because it was making the rounds so much on the internet but so few people are actually pointing out that it was him doing it like crediting yeah. the work yeah but um and whenever yeah, you, you know drop a comment on it trying to explain that it just is lost in the in the thousands of shitty comments yeah, but he also plays with stuff like um, heat finishes and stuff. Like, he did a hawk where he did, like, the heat bluing and all that kind of stuff on the feathers to make them all stand out. Yeah. Um, just just the detail. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. Why, 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 why are people? <laughs> um, <laughs> what are people? But, yeah, if you haven't checked out Kevin Stone, um, metal sculptor Kevin Stone, all with underscores between them, uh, definitely do yourself a favor and do it because it is absolutely insane. Do it. Do it. Yes. But with that being said, that brings us to the end of the show because we are both very tired boys. Um, <laughs> if you would tired. like to send us a question, uh, please feel free to email us at ask.forgecast at gmail.com or you can find us at the.forgecast on Instagram or the Forgecast on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there and we might answer it on the show. Um, the Townsboy build off only has a week to go. So make sure that you're getting in on that. If you haven't already, there are some awesome prizes and there are still six days to go. So you've got time. Uh, and the the town's forge world challenge. Yeah, that's it. And the forge world challenge forge world something. I think there's one person that's tagged me so far. That's actually done one. Um, He did a good job. He did. It was very good. Uh, I believe that was Nathan from Northern Iron Forge. Um, Mm. anyway, uh, if you want to contact me, you can find me at Samtown's Bladesmith on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, you know, the kitchen sink. Where can they find you, Alex? 
I go by Valhalla Ironworks. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Redbubble, TikTok, and I'm also on Mastodon now. Mastodon? Mastodon. Didn't they go extinct? Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, I was talking about Tusk before. But Mm. no, it's because... You know, every social media company is owned by corporate billionaires. So um, there's been a rise of several uh, sort of decentralized, community-driven social media platforms, and Mastodon is the fastest-growing one. It's looking like a real contender. Um, So I thought I'd join. You never know. It might turn into nothing. But if you are on Mastodon, look me up. You trendsetter, you. I know, right? It's it's basically <laughs> it's basically a really bad copy of Twitter, but I'm hoping that with so many people jumping onto the platform at the moment because they're joining in I mean, like hundreds of thousands of new people a week. Given um, given how much to shit Twitter is going. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, a, a, between a between Tesla well. and Twitter, that man really knows how to crash a car. Oh mate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. Maybe I'll a car crash. maybe I'll I'll go over there and and join yeah, the the Mastodon army. It's odd. It's it's kind of shit at the moment. But I'll tell you <laughs> what, with with the the growth that it is experiencing, I'm pretty sure they're going to find the time to in, improve the app. Uh, but that being said, quick. like think of literally any platform, like Instagram in the early days, or Facebook yeah. in the early days, or YouTube in the early days. They all sucked. The they voice cast in the massively. early days. Yeah, well, yeah. We still suck. We're just just in denial about it. Yeah, we're just talking to empty rooms. That's it. We make up all the emails. Yeah. Tony's not real. (laughs) The cake is a lie. (laughs) The cake is a lie. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, guys, hope you have a great week. We will see you next time. Bye bye. See you guys. Oh!